You're listening to Mind and Matter, a mindfulness podcast from Cascadia Behavioral Healthcare. Join us twice a month for new episodes covering all things mindfulness and mental health. Together, we'll create connection, conversation, and community. For more information and resources, visit us online at www.cascadiabhc.org. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Mind and Matter. I'm Julia Combs, your host for today's episode. Joining us is Megan J.M. Kahe, author, artist, musician, and Cascadia's Senior Director of Peer-Delivered Services, and a faculty member of the Psychiatry Department of Oregon Health and Science University. In her memoir titled Mudflower, Surviving Schizophrenia and Suicide Through Art, Megan tells her story of surviving mental illness and the healing power of art. Mudflower has won two book awards since it was published in May, and it is available in multiple formats through major book vendors. Thank you so much for joining us today, Megan. Thank you, Julie. I'm really happy to be with you. Great. Your story is focused on your your journey with serious mental illness and how you've discovered how to heal from that and thrive. I was wondering if you could start by telling us when you first were uh, diagnosed with um, a mental health condition or when you first started experiencing symptoms. Oh, sure. Um, before I did that, though, I would just like to say that it's my goal in telling my story to help open open out and inform a more enlightened view of how we look at people. So it's part of my work and part of my uh, goal in telling my story to break down the discrimination and replace it with connection and you know, art is a really important part of communication and connection. So getting back to the story. Um, so I was 19, to answer your question, I was 19 uh, when I first started having symptoms. I'd gone to college uh, to, in Colorado, from, gone from Texas. I was actually sitting in art history class and the showing all these dramatic slides of Francesco Goya. Anyway, I'm sitting up there by myself, and I just start hearing this very tiny little sound at first. But the longer I was there looking at these paintings, the sound got louder and louder. And at first, I couldn't tell if it was even saying anything, or was it male or female. But after a while, it got so loud that then I realized all at once that it was saying how bad I am or how bad I was. And I had never experienced anything like that. And it was like condemning me. So when the class was over, I just ran out and started crossing the campus to get back to my dorm. And I remember there was this woman crossing the quad coming towards me. But when I looked at her face, her face looked like a giant insect, and that was awful. It was so frightening. And then I got back to the, my dorm room, and I looked in the bathroom mirror at my own face, and I had turned into some kind of beast. I was, yeah, there was blood oozing out, not really, but in my vision, yeah, I looked, I didn't look human anymore. So that was terrifying. And that was the beginning, really. And so I uh, 
was having a really hard time coping with it. The, the voices would, would berate me and call me things and tell me I should die. And I wasn't getting much sleep. Finally, there was a night when the very first snow of the year started to happen. And I had been hounded by these voices all day. And, but I went out to the snow and stood under a street lamp and just looked up at the, the flurries coming down. And it was so peaceful to see them. It was just, it was like a, a huge relief. There was just one problem, which was I had, I didn't have on any shoes or a coat and there it was snowing. So some students came and saw that I was out there and they figured out that I was, that I was in trouble. And so they took me, they insisted I go with them to the uh, student health center. So at the student health center, they um, put me in the dark room for a couple of days and started giving me drugs. I think it was like Thorazine. I started to sleep. I slept for a few days. And um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play a recording from just a small bit from um, my book, Mudflower, about getting diagnosed with, with schizophrenia. The voices had stopped bothering me so much. All I wanted was sleep. Suddenly, I was awake. One of the royal women in white appeared. Lucky you, Missy. Now you get to see the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist, she said, emphasizing this in a way that I knew it must be important. The way she said it made me feel a rush of dread. I had heard of psychiatrists before, but I knew nothing about what they did, except maybe they were some kind of doctor. A shrink, I thought they were called. I think maybe I saw one in a movie once. I couldn't remember. Was it like Sigmund Freud? I was escorted down a long hall to the psychiatrist's office. I entered and heard the door squeak and then emphatically click behind me. It was a small office, filled up with a massive desk, tall shelves piled with books, and on the walls were a myriad of impressive framed diplomas and certificates. And then, there he was, the psychiatrist. He motioned for me to sit, and then I was able to get a full look at him. He was a big man, a little hunched over, and he looked ancient. His wild, single tuft of hair was a yellowy white. He had substantial, bushy white eyebrows and, most remarkably, profuse, untrimmed hair wiggled its way out his nose and ears. His eyes were watery blue and bloodshot. All I could do was stare at him and his prodigious nose hair. We regarded each other not speaking. Then he leaned toward me across his big desk and pointed his crooked, old, decrepit yellow finger at me. In a deep, accusatory voice, he intoned, you have schizophrenia. I just sat there, stunned. I had no idea what schizophrenia was, but I was sure that he had just given me a death sentence. 
It crossed my mind that anyone with that much nose hair couldn't possibly know what they were talking about. But the power of his pronouncement was inescapable. I was doomed. Unfortunately, that's, I think, probably a pretty common feeling that a lot of people have when they get a serious psychiatric diagnosis. And um, part of part of what we're doing in terms of the work we do in the field called peer-delivered services is show that people who have had very grave um, psychiatric diagnoses, that life doesn't stop, that actually you could be given a really tough diagnosis and then turn out doing really a lot of good with your life. I've, I've been hospitalized personally over a hundred times and I've probably had 10 or 12 suicide attempts and um, I could, I've been in seclusion restraint for, you know, I've had my, my ankles and my wrists tied down. It's an awful feeling. And then I've had you know, many medications and various types of shock treatments. But the thing is that when I got to a place where I thought maybe I could work, my psychiatrist said, the county psychiatrist, he said, you're too sick to work. So I wasn't even encouraged a possibility of working and doing something other than going in and out of the hospital. Yeah, it sounds like just uh, sort of the symptoms you were experiencing were so frightening and by themselves and then to also be sort of constantly discouraged by the people that were reportedly trying to help you just seems like a really tough situation to be in. Um, as a whole, in our society as a whole, we assume that people who have what we would call you know, grave or serious, serious and persistent mental illness is a term that I really dislike, but people have you know, these very um, grave diagnoses that they can't possibly live a life that has meaning and purpose, and especially that makes for a person is able to make contributions to other people in society. We're just kind of given up on and, and the uh, possibilities, uh, those doors get shut that they were ever open to begin with. And that's something I'm really trying to, to, to change. Now, for me, um, I didn't work full-time until I was in my early 50s. As an undergraduate in college, I started out as an art major. And then when I had the problems with the uh, voices and, and also visual hallucinations, I changed my major to psychology so that I could maybe figure out what was happening to my brain. Then when I graduated with the psychology degree, I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go into art therapy because that'll combine art with psychology. And I went to a school, a Goddard College in Vermont. And I think I lasted three weeks in that program be before becoming very, very uh, psychotic and being told that I would either be forcibly hospitalized in the state hospital or, or I would have to go to another hospital. 
you know, it, there, was a, there were a lot of dead ends and brick walls in front of me as I went along. But one thing that happened is that in my late 40s, I found a clinical trial for medication that was in phase three. So the final phase of the trial helped control the, the uh, hallucinations and the, the psychotic symptoms. So I can remember after I'd been in this clinical trial for about nine months or so, um, I was out in my yard digging a hole to plant something. And suddenly I had this really weird feeling all throughout my body and in my mind. And it's like, what is this feeling? Well, what it was, was pleasure. I had not felt pleasure in so long, in probably years, that I didn't even recognize mm -hmm. it. And there I was out digging a hole and I realized, oh, I'm happy. This feels good. And that was that was like a shock to me. So um, you know, that just shows kind of how upside down things can be when the point came where I was going to, where I decided that I wanted to have a regular job. And my doctor says, oh, you're too sick to work. I thought, well, maybe I'm not. I'm going to try. And that is when my career began that led to me being a senior director for peer delivered services at Cascadia. So, yeah. And so it sounds like there was a very sort of long period in your life where you were sort of being institutionalized over and over, um, just facing, like you said, brick walls over and over again, a lot of discouragement yes. from uh, the medical system. What Was there anything in your life that sort of helped uh, buoy you or, or brought you hope or helped you keep going? Uh, yes. First of all, always through my life, there have been people who, like when I was first an undergrad, the uh, students, would be with me sometimes when I'd be really psychotic and she would be very reassuring. Um, but there are always, not always, but very often some people would be more enlightened and would step forward and offer a hand. And I would be very grateful to connect with the, the, those people. And it's still like that in my life. And I do want to just emphasize that the honest, the honest truth is, it's like it's not like I've solved everything at this point in my life. Um, I've, yeah, I've accomplished some things I never thought possible, or anyone thought possible, in terms of my career and some other things. But I mean, I would be presenting a totally false picture if I said that I never saw something that maybe other people didn't see or heard something that other people didn't hear. Um, that's, that's part of my life. And it's not such a big deal. It's really just not such a big deal. And, and actually sometimes, especially being a, a visual artist and a writer, it, it can be a great source of um, material for telling stories and 
connecting with people. The connecting with people is so important by being able to share what I see and what I hear through art. I think it builds some bridges, not only for between me and the rest of the world, but also between um, all kinds of people in our society that tend to be pushed into the category of the other, whether it be you know racial or or gender or able you know illness of whatever kind, um, the the othering of people and dehumanizing of people is a huge problem for human beings. And art is one of the ways I believe that we could really help resolve that. Yeah. And uh, what role did art play in, in your uh, recovery? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I had been struggling and um, at the same time, I was living uh, near, south of Corvallis in the Christmas tree farms, but I had discovered, I had joined up with a bunch of Buddhists that had a meditation group every Sunday, and I would meditate with them, but I would not talk to them at all. It's like when I would be at home during the week, I might do things that were self-destructive, you know, I might do you know, things to mm -hmm. hurt myself. And then I would go on Sundays and other days of the week and practice nonviolence and mindfulness and meditation. So there's this big disconnect. But the more I practiced, the more, I mean, some changes started happening inside me. And this idea of nonviolence started growing bigger and more important to me just in terms of what is this and what does this mean I was asking these questions so I had had a really bad night of insomnia and I walked through the house to my studio and in my studio laying open on a table there was this uh, contemporary Buddhist magazine and there was an article on lotuses and it said that a lotus flower is you know, obviously a beautiful flower, but that they have to have the roots in the mud to be beautiful and flourish and be these gorgeous flowers. And when I read that, suddenly I thought, oh my goodness, my life has all this mud. This is a metaphor for that I can use all this pain which I had a lot of pain and suffering in my life, I could use that to create something beautiful. And beauty was and is and always will be very important to me. So I started painting these images of lotuses. And the more I would paint these lotuses, the stronger the energy would rise up inside me, affirming my own life force. And it was that dramatic, you know, it's just, it's like my will to live got stronger and stronger. And even now, it's, it's not like that I never have a, 
an urge to, to end my life, but my urge to live is much stronger. And the, the life force is just, you know, I have such, um, I'm in awe of the life force, both my own and of the students that teach uh, the people that it's like the life force is beautiful thing. I think that's a good sort of transition to talking about your role in peer-directed services. Um, Sort of when did you first become interested in in peer services and how did that become part of your life? I would just say that when I was in Vermont, I was going to become an art art therapist. I worked very briefly at the Vermont State Hospital uh, as an intern. We did some art groups. And um, so I thought, well, I'll make a, a proposal to the Benton County Mental Health Department and about teaching classes, uh, drawing classes to some of the clients. So I made that proposal and they came back with the other proposal saying, we're going to have a five county art show for, a client, for mental health clients would you be the liaison for Bitten County? And it was an opportunity and I was scared to death, but I said, sure. And um, started going to all these patient organizations and client organizations and advocacy organizations, trying to get people to um, submit art for this art show. At the time when I was going around trying to solicit art from people, there was a small group of people, of people with mental health diagnosis, and they called their little group BEARS. And BEARS is an acronym for Bad of Empowered Advocates Reclaiming Self-Determination, which is a great, great acronym. And so I was pleading with them to make art for, for the show. And they said, oh, we just got a grant to create a model for a peer delivered service training program for Bitten County. And they said, and we want you to be our, the coordinator for it. And I was still working on the art show. And I, I said, I was, I was um, flattered that they thought I could do that, but I knew nothing about being the coordinator. And I didn't know what peer delivered services were to even begin with. So I said I couldn't do it, but they kind of stayed after me about it. So by the time the art show was over, I was stepping into this role of being a coordinator to design a, a training program, a, a service program for Benton County, totally out of league of, totally outside of anything I'd ever done in my life. But what it meant was that I was studying peer services from across the country. And um, and then I actually went to a training and got trained myself uh, personally. And um, after I got trained, I was able to get a part-time job in the Pathways program in um, Eugene. And I just will say, it's very important that in 2006, a big study came out, a big national study 
and it said that people who have serious and persistent mental illness die on average 25 years earlier than the general population. So I had been working at the Pathways Program for about four, four, four months at the most. And in that time, more than four people that I was working with had died prematurely. They were dying. So at that time, I just, it's like, it was like somebody punched me in my gut. I thought, I've got to do something to change the statistic. It's not right for people to try so hard to make their lives be what they want and then to die prematurely. So that's really what kind of launched me into the work of where I um, envisioned and, and designed the worker uh, description that we now call peer wellness specialists. A peer wellness specialist is everything that peer support specialist is, but then they have a whole nother um, equal amount of training in how to support people and healthful lifestyles. And we know that 60% approximately of premature deaths among people with psychiatric illness is that it's, it's from modifiable lifestyle changes or problems. So the smoking, the, the poor diet, the, um, the homelessness, the, what we call the social determinants of health, um, there are things that can be modified and changed with help and support that makes it so that people can actually live a, a full life. And that became a real passion of mine. Yeah. And how did your experience of so many years um, going in and out of institutions and the treatments uh, you were sort of subjected to, like how did that inform uh, the training that you now provide to um, peer wellness specialists? It's not direct, exactly. It's, it's more, there's just an underlying belief that people who do have a diagnosis can overcome and just define their lives outside that diagnosis in a way that, that our society generally doesn't even think is possible. So it's more just having the belief that people can heal and overcome serious issues. Even if they still have symptoms, they can still overcome the symptoms and work or do something that they want with their lives. We're not just helpless victims of symptoms. So if we can go forward. And also, I probably the most important thing is that in mental health, we often hear the word recovery. Recovery is a really important word, sure. But one, I wrote a paper at one point, and it's called The Value of Unrecovery. And why I want to tell about unrecovery is that the concept of unrecovery is that at, at the deepest level of our being, we are already whole and beautiful and perfect. And... That's our deepest reality. And then all these layers from the trauma and the things that happen get piled on top of that deepest reality. So really what needs to happen is 
those layers need to be pulled back and the, the deeper reality needs to be uncovered. So to, to me, that's, that's one of the most important parts of you know, the, the teachings I do. I wonder if you could speak to um, sort of what a peer wellness specialist does um, and maybe how it fills some of the uh, sort of what's missing in sort of the traditional medical system for people experiencing behavioral health conditions? The answer to that is that it depends on the program and the environment that the peer wellness specialist is working in. One thing that I think is like a beautiful example of what we can't do is there's, there's a program that helps people that have really significant um, problems with their, their daily lives. It used to be that, that this was a program that was staffed by people with, with master's level and higher degrees, which is really important and great. I don't want to put that down in any way, but um, in terms of funding programs and creating programs, it's it's harder to make as many services as we need if everyone working in that field has to have a master's level uh, uh, licensure. Now, with Pure One Specialists, we're certified by the state. If after completing for Cascadia, it's a twenty week training program. But like with this program that I'm trying to tell about, is that as they've increased the, the level of the number of pure wellness specialists, they've been seeing that the number of the frequency of emergency hospitalizations or um, um, emergency department visits has been decreasing. And I love to talk about this one pure wellness specialist that I trained, I trained her years ago. And she you know, struggled to find her place in the organization where she was doing, before she was really using her own skills and passions, but she stuck with it. And now here we are in this pandemic and she's working from home virtually, but she's connecting with people, with clients who were in serve, receiving services through this program. And many of these folks don't have it haven't gone outside in maybe months and they don't you know normally they would just sit maybe in front of a tv and not move well this pure wellness specialist now has them getting up and doing ballet with her and moving and doing all these really cool movement things with her and the people are having fun which is a great healing <laughs> force and and the pure wellness specialist loves her work. And it's like everyone's winning from this. But also the people, the clients that are doing ballet with her and doing these movement games, they're really games. It's, it's a form of play. That's, I think, an example of just the beauty of what, what can be done. What do you think the value is of for someone who is struggling with a behavioral health challenge, what's the benefit of connecting with someone who has lived experience that's similar to their own? You know, that's a personal question. I mean, that's 
it's going to be different for different people. For some people, there may not be any value at all. And for some people, it might be the most valuable part of their whole treatment. You know, people should have freedom to try different kinds of treatment. There are some people, though, that they just don't feel the connection with people who don't have the lived experience. There's there's not that common ground, but with the peer provider, there's enough common ground and common language, so to speak, that people feel more understood. And so the engagement for treatment becomes stronger. And also, also one thing I think that is really important is that when people generally see someone who has come through a life with multiple suicide attempts and multiple hospitalizations and some really bad times that when people say, oh, they're really, they're, they, they can't function at all outside the institution. Well, when, when people see that, oh, well, it is possible to overcome those times. It is possible to heal. It's possible to have a meaningful life, even though most of society doesn't think it's possible. But if we show that it is indeed possible, well, that, that's the beginning of hope right there. We're planting a seed that you can go through the fire and come out the other side. It is possible. Um, a lot of society doesn't believe it's possible. And yet, I think those of us doing the work are showing that society is wrong if they write us off. Uh, sort of going back to your book, Mudflower, I was wondering if you could talk about sort of what the response has been to your book so far. Um, have you heard from readers with similar stories or um, sort of what's the, the general reception you've received? Writing the book uh, has really been helpful to me personally. And part of that is because what I sometimes tell people is since writing the book, I'm totally out of the closet. Um, I, I tell things in the book that for much of my life, I was too ashamed to share because I thought it was a statement of my own imperfection and my own horribleness. And in the, in the book, it's like I find out that, oh, I, okay, I can write about these things and share these things and um, actually connect with people. So I've had great response from people who have read it. Um, or listen to it. It's, the audio book is um, narrated by a woman in Canada named Sheila Sharma, and her 18-year-old uh, younger sister died by suicide. And so for her to narrate the book took on a very personal uh, meaning. And I hear from all kinds of people, uh, both people who are providers and doctors and people that have family members and people that are struggling with whether they want to live or die. It's like, um, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by, I mean, people are constantly telling me, thank you for writing this book. And I'm, I'm always a little surprised just by how they're embracing it and that it actually has power to, to reach out and be useful for some people. Part, I think the most surprising part to me is that people are grateful to me for having written the book. 
and that I mean that that feels so good. That's great. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered? Um, I would just like to say that back to the idea of uncovery, recovery versus uncovery. So if we recover something, that means that we had it and then we lost it and then we get it back. But if if it's uncovered, maybe in this lifetime, we, we've never even known that it existed. And yet, if we find a way to uncover the layers that we've built on top of it, and if we assist each other in, in uncovering the layers, and part of it is just knowing or having the belief that each other, that our friends, our, our, our peers, our colleagues, our family members, our community members who are struggling, that down underneath all the struggles that they have, a level of their own personal wellness and intention and uh, beauty. It's just, it goes back to art and beauty for me that people, people have art and beauty at the core of their souls. And that gets rather metaphysical, I guess, but I would say end on the words art and beauty. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, let's do that then. Um, thank you so much for, um, for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks everyone for joining today's conversation. Head over to www.cascadiabhc.org to explore more mindfulness resources. See you next time.